The Dragon Prince, an animated fantasy series released on September 14th, 2018, is one of the most ambitious animated projects that I have personally ever seen. Now, for the, ever since I was a little kid, I've been a massive fan of animation and even more fantasy, initially sparked by shows like Avatar The Last Airbender that aired regularly when I was a young child. So when I heard that some of the writing team from that project, as well as people who worked on the Uncharted games that had a great sense of mystery, fun, puzzles, and danger, were going to be making a show, I knew I had to check it out. And not only because it's consumed my life for the past five-ish years, but also because sometimes I've found the YouTube analysis landscape for it a little bit lacking, I decided to formally toss my hat into the ring and do a much bigger and more ambitious video essay than I ever have before. What's going to follow is hopefully anywhere from 20 to 40 minutes of talking about why this show is excellent, uh, my main sort of like thesis for the idea, as well as I'm sure a few minor mistakes and stumbles as I am going to record the majority of this in one take. Um, for my little writing credentials, I am a graduated English major. I got my honor specialization in analyzing stories. I basically reverse engineered literary analysis to myself when I was a kid. And I think that The Dragon Prince is underrated for a lot of different reasons in a lot of ways. But I think the fact that the show can be broken down to a very sort of simple statement and then show the complexities and nuance within that statement is one of the reasons why it is such a strong piece of fiction and emotional storytelling that we just don't see very often, especially not to this skill and on this scale. And so with that kind of all out of the way, I want to say that the genius of the Dragon Prince is that everything ties back to the cycle. And I know that that sounds really simple. Well, yeah, duh, you know, it gets spelled out for us a few times uh, in, in beautiful ways, mind you. But I think what makes the show absolutely brilliant is how it shows that the cycle creates similarity. So let me explain what I mean. First things first, I want to talk about a small concept that we're going to come back to a few times in the idea that there is such a thing as character bias. This is undoubtedly something that you have heard of before if you've ever been in an analytical space or even just passing by in your English classes. And if you're a writer, then you definitely know what it is because character and perspective bias is inherently all about the way that how your characters view the world is going to be different than how other characters view the world. And making those difference in perspectives understandable, but also different from each other, is honestly one of the things that I think the Dragon Prince does best. Because it means that even when you have a character, and there are a few characters in the show who do this, where they will separate the main cast into good guys or bad guys. Most notably, I want to say Soren and Rayla do this a couple times. You know, Soren is like, 
Um, my dad is a villain when he finally has his turning point with Viren. And then in season four, he remarks like, oh, oh, it feels good to be one of the good guys. You know, we have Rayla saying that Claudia and Viren are bad guys in like season five. And of course, on, on one level, this is like a very convenient kind of shorthand. You know, you maybe don't always want to be saying all of the characters' names at any given time. Um, and the Dragon Prince is also very interested, as we're going to get into later, into like morality and like ethical dilemmas. And like those are often used when we talk about, oh, well, this is like a bad thing to do or a good thing to do. So on one hand, it makes sense. But on the other hand, I also think that it's noteworthy that just because a character or a couple of characters label someone in that way, it tells us, I think, a lot more about their perspective on these characters than it necessarily does on the writer's perspective on these characters. This is for a few different reasons. The first is basically that, you know, especially I want to say maybe in today's fandom, less so than when I was growing up, there can be this inclination towards assuming that whatever the author says or has a character do is especially if it's a protagonist, is oftentimes like, oh, well, that's what like the author or the writer thinks is the right thing to do. And it's not that Dragon Prince has none of that. You know, like when we listen to Harrow's like speech about a narrative of love versus a narrative of strength, like we are very much supposed to be aligned with his takeaway that a narrative of love is better and more meaningful and therefore good in comparison to keeping within a narrative of strength that's going to be more harmful and toxic and perpetuating the cycle, which I promise we're getting back to shortly. The main reason, however, why character perspective is really important and character bias is really important is basically to kind of see the ways that like, you know, every character in this show, and this is why one of the reasons why I think that they're all really well written, is going to be oftentimes fundamentally opposed to some people and allied with others for a variety of different reasons, whether that's like family loyalty, you have aligned values, um, you know, you have to work together because you're in a confined like space, or, you know, simply because, you know, I love this person or I've chosen this person and so I'm going to help them. But this is where we get all the kind of fertile ground, if you will, for the sheer complexity that the series has. It's actually very, very rare for the show at any point to have a relationship where it's just two characters and they just hate each other and that's it. That's kind of the end of the dynamic. The majority of the main cast at one point we're all allied with each other and then now and if he doesn't really feel that way because we're so many seasons into like the fallout of those bonds being broken or deteriorating but that is ultimately the case like of where we are with these characters you know claudia can have the cognitive dissonances that she does in regards to you know thinking like oh well, all the elves and dragons already hate us and therefore, Terry and Erevos are her exceptions to that rule where, oh, they're good elves and they're good elves pretty conveniently because they're also helping her in her goals, you know. But that doesn't mean that she doesn't hold real affection for both of them, particularly Terry. He is her boyfriend. She does love him, right? But also from the outside, we can see that, hey, that's a pretty messed up dynamic in and of itself. And we can see where that messiness is coming from. Or even the fact, you know, while Rayla might say, oh, these people are villains and we're inclined to agree with her, 
that doesn't mean that she's always a perfect judge of character. She was raised as an assassin. She enters the series going to perpetuate the cycle. Yes, she changes her ways very quickly, but we also see that she loves people like Renan, who has given no indication that he's going to change thus far. And Callum is also on board with freeing him because of his dynamic with Rayla, almost regardless of what Renan has done. And so kind of keeping, but you look, you know, you look at somebody who Cal and Rayla both like have very much not forgiven in Claudia and Viren because those same tethers of love have been broken or never existed in the first place. So I think it's important to keep in mind oftentimes that like even the good guys and the bad guys, they're all coming from their own biased perspectives. It's not that those perspectives are coming from nowhere. However, the antagonists oftentimes do tend to have a little bit less of the whole picture. Meanwhile, the, the protagonists usually tend to lean more on the side of harm reduction, as well as having a little bit more of the big picture. One of the things that I loved most going into arc two of the series, this is another thing that I kind of want to get out of the way, is that in our, you know, art, the first three seasons are very much more of the prototypical kind of like fantasy action adventure journey, you know, you're going on a pretty straightforward quest from point A to point B, you know, you have your plot MacGuffin already there in terms of the egg and then of Zim. And Zim in the first three seasons is his own, you know, I'm very fond of him. He's a great character in his own right, but he very much is there in order to develop the rest of the main cast by and large, like through how they interact with him, through how they protect him or like kind of where the journey to take him home leads those characters, right? So like arc one is very much like, you know, the people you think are going to be bad are are bad and the people you think are going to be good are good and there's little like pitfalls there's definitely some twists and turns i know for myself i was very surprised when ezrin decided to go home but i thought it was a great example of how you can break um genre convention of what we expect going into a story like this while not breaking your narrative because it actually elevates and makes the narrative of your story better you know, it's set up and subversive. It's not just one or the other. And I think that's another thing that the Dragon Prince does extraordinarily well. The other thing about Arc 1, right, is again, it's that kind of you, we we win the day, right? Like the people that we're typically supposed to be inclined to root for, they win the war, you know, everybody except kind of Claudia and Viren come out decently all right. Obviously, there's still going to be some political instability because of the armies and the soldiers, but it very much isn't anymore like arc one, the end of it is where most stories would stop. And I think one of the great things about arc two that almost unsettles itself on purpose in a really interesting way Um is that it says, okay, but we're going past the happy ending. Because as Ezrin and Janai in season four in particular spell out to us, it's not that simple that you win the war and then everything is easy and everybody gets along and likes each other. The show is deeply interested in being like, okay, you won, what now? 
And I think that's something as somebody who also writes like war centric fantasy, a lot of shows and media don't really concern themselves too much with like post the initial big war conflict. And I really enjoy that in Dragon Prince, we're getting that that balance of yes, some of this, a lot of this is Erebos's machinations kind of coming back to full force and coming back to haunt us. But particularly with the Sunbar Elf plotline, right now at least, that's entirely removed from the Erebos stuff. And I think that really highlights like exactly what Ezra means when he says it's not that simple. There would still be these issues without Erebos. These things would still exist. These emotions, these difficult conversations would still need to be dealt with and addressed. Erebos is also kind of another cherry on top in terms of, holy crap, we have issues. But it very much like develops the world and again allows the characters to have these differing perspectives where even if we don't always agree with them, and oftentimes we want to disagree with them, we can at very least understand where they're coming from. We can we can sympathize with them and we can appreciate basically I think their character journeys in a fuller sense because we have that legwork, because we have that understanding. Finally, with all of that introduction out of the way, I want to get back to what I spoke of in terms of my thesis, which is that the cycle creates similarity, and it does this largely through suffering and grief. The initial example that I want to talk about is something that I think is again, kind of understated in the show itself. But then once you notice it, you kind of keep noticing it. I wrote a larger meta about this in, in greater detail um, over on my Tumblr Raylum with two A's. So I am going to be, if you've read that meta and you're also here, thank you for listening. If you haven't read that meta, uh, don't worry about it. A lot of it's going to end up here. So you're all, you're all good. Um, Basically, the idea is that in a lot of ways, Kareem is walking Viren's political path in season four and season five. And we see this in a few different ways. The first, obviously, you know, Viren initially, like Kareem, is the brother mage advisor in a lot of ways to the current ruler. They're very like supportive, not without their disagreements. You know, uh, Kareem is very traditional. Viren in some ways is very ambitious, you know, that sort of thing. But ultimately, they are on good terms. They do both like the monarch's like partner, you know, there's not a lot of like ill will between them. However, you know, Harrow and Viren have their breakdown for their own reasons. It's almost like a mutual dis discarding of their relationship, of their bond, where Harrow discards it first, and then Viren discards it in more almost like harshness, you know, depending on what he did behind closed doors, which we're still waiting to see, but that's okay. Um, and even that being like a very kind of like slow build through the years of their dynamic, of basically Harrow eventually becoming fed up with dark magic and Viren just being unable to see why because the blood price hasn't personally come for him. He's still thinking he can cheat and avoid consequences. And I think we see some of that mindset again with Kareem in season five in particular. Even though obviously Viren is a dark mage and Kareem like hates dark magic, it's what's ruined his city. Viren is what has ruined his city and his people and his eyes. Kareem is a lot like Viren. He's also impatient. He's thinking we can't just wait around for things to happen. Like we have to go, we have to start doing things. Like 
you know, my my people have lost their home. For Kareem, it's like this immediate loss, right? Is it's been two years. For Viren, he's so far removed from actually ever living in Zadia. It's been like a thousand years, you know, but he sees that unification that like conquering is like a rightful reclamation of power as he says in like season one to soren he's like we might finally take back the lands that are rightfully ours if we are strong enough to make the right choices and we also see that kareem is very focused on strength he's all about you know like history which viren is too they're both telling stories to kind of get a, their points across they're both calling political meetings to try to rally people you know for their favor for their uh war effort or power grab neither of neither of it goes very well it ends ultimately with them being arrested you know they cut deals with shadowy imprisoned elves revering it is Erebos in the mirror and for kareem it is kimdale who is linked to his bloodline, you know, Viren literally shares some blood as we see later turns into Sir Sparklepuff. And he also has the staff, which is clearly connected to not Erevos's maybe like blood lineage or anything like that, but very much his magical lineage and effect on the world. You know, he sees that staff the first time him and Viren really make contact and he's like, okay, I immediately know that you're going to be useful to me. I immediately know everything about you as a person. And even some of that being like, you know, mages tend to be similar to each other. And so this is kind of, you know, Viren through his conquest, through his conquering kind of creates like a microcosm of his own issues in Kareem. He is also displacing someone. He is also making a monarch and a mage brother, prince, sibling kind of like fall apart, you know? Um, and obviously we see with Kareem, he also kind of wants to use an arch dragon. You know, Viren wanted to harvest Zubea and to use Zim. Uh, and Kareem thinks kind of like Viren, kind of like Claudia of, oh, if I can just fix the physical issue, if I can cure Sol Regum's sight, then everything will be fine and he'll do whatever I want him to do and we can, we can go back. We can have what we had before. And I think that's one of the issues like with a lot of the antagonists is that they keep trying to cheat consequences. They keep saying, oh, well, if I just have more power than I can enact my will, you know, again, we see this kind of with Finnegan, although I'll get to Finnegan later. We definitely see this with Claudia. You know, she cures Soren's paralysis. She brings her father back from the dead. She's deeply confused and kind of concerned that Soren would still have hangups about what's happened to him and their relationship with their father. And she is kind of oblivious and then sort of obtuse and aggressive when Viren isn't automatically being the person that she wants him to be when she's like, you know, of course he can go up the mountain to her. She fixed the problem. What do you mean there's still emotional trauma and fear there? She fixed the issue. Isn't that enough? Because Claudia is the queen of just suppressing things. And I think, again, it's like we see even with Claudia and Rayla, they are two very similar people in a lot of ways at their core. They're both daughters given a dark task by their fathers you know they both initially fail at those tasks claudia is supposed to protect the egg she loses it partially because of rayla rayla is supposed to kill the crown guard marcos she cannot do it 
right? And then it's kind of like the big difference between them is that Rayla defects almost immediately and Claudia hangs on for dear life. She will not let go even when Viren is trying to change, even when he's willing to change. She keeps pushing because she believes in the sunk cost fallacy of I have poured too much of myself into this to ever consider anything else. And I think that's one of the ways that Rayla is also very different, obviously, because yes, they're both wandering Zadia for two years because of Viren. They're both going through uh, sad and traumatic things basically all by themselves. You know, they both even get a little like Zadian companion. You know, Claudia forms a relationship with Terry, who very much becomes her lifeline in a lot of ways. Uh, and then Rayla has Stella, who is, you know, a very cute little companion, sometimes very helpful, which is which is good. Uh, but we see Rayla and Claudia be continually kind of contrasted. You know, they have that immediate defection. Claudia is presenting herself as a true friend at the Moon Nexus. She actually isn't. Rayla is struggling to convince Callum at first that she is a true friend. She eventually is and she proves it. You know, obviously in at the end of season three and at the end of, you know, the final episode, um, Rila kills Viren successfully this time. And Claudia is the one who brings him back. I always wondered once Claudia had the white hair, if it would eventually go all white and she and Rila would would match in an almost twisted way. Because I do think there's almost this like dichotomy in the series in terms of some of the similarities between assassins and dark mages that's meant to be there on purpose. Again, because the cycle creates a similar trauma in the people experiencing it. Runan and Viren are both like very driven. They both kind of weaponize their children to a degree, not totally intentionally. Culturally, Rail is becoming what a young, good moon shadow assassin should be. She's clearly throwing herself into it. We see in Blood Moon Huntress that she requested it and I have no doubt that she like really argued to be allowed to go on the mission or it was just even an expectation that she was fully prepared to take on because of her parents shame you know Renan and Viren both see themselves as protectors you can't really say that oh well this one's totally a protector and this one isn't and this one's just bad and this one is you know it's kind of like well no they both have their reasons for thinking that they're just both also wrong to circle back to Rayla and Claudia for a minute, one of the things that stood out to me in season four, obviously, is that they're both experiencing reunions of people that uh, they were severed from for two years. It's both a high mage for Claudia. It's her dad who's no longer holding the position. Uh, for Rayla, it's Callum who now holds Viren's previous position and kind of, you know, trying to act like things can go back to normal because that's what they've been longing for this whole time but both of their high mages still have some emotional hangups like over the fact that they've been separated, particularly for Callum, you know, Viren kind of got to gloss over those two years. They didn't really exist to him, but Callum has lived every day. He's lived what, like 720 days or something, not, not knowing if Rayla's okay. Of course he's not okay when she comes back. And even then, you know, Viren and Callum are both like, oh, well, maybe I should die right? Like Viren's like, maybe I should just let go and, you know, kind of relinquish control. And Callum is also scared of not having control. And we'll get to Callum and Viren later. Um, and we see Rayla and Claudia both be like, no, absolutely not. 
because and again it's kind of like well claudia is wrong to do so and Rayla's right to do so it's like where does that difference come in you know and it's kind of like the reasoning behind it the contrast the parallels all that sort of thing and i think again we even see that in people like claudia and ezrin or soren and Rayla. you know but claudia and ezrin they're both a lot more passive particularly in the first few seasons in arc two they're a lot more assertive confident willing to push for their ideas their ideals claudia doesn't really have ideals but you know what i'm saying you know um obviously they still have uh, immense weight on their shoulders. They are the younger sibling who took up their father's mantle in ways that their older brother did not. Um, there is indication that Ezrin is going to have a bit of a harder time with everything regarding Renan, which would fit pretty neatly if Claudia is also going to have a very difficult, angry time coping with the loss of her father in season six, although like we shall have to see, but that's like a speculative parallel for the future um you know but again these characters are similar they both prefer to not make decisions if they don't have to particularly again in the first few seasons they both kind of grow into more active roles and then you have that sort of contrast as well because of just how differently they view the world and view nature despite growing up in the same castle together you know like Ezrin is nothing but a friend to dragons he sees personhood in all creatures and he can literally communicate with them and then you have Claudia who's been encouraged by her magic source by her father by herself by Erevos to routinely dehumanize whatever suits her to dehumanize even herself you know I always have thought it was really interesting that Claudia takes on more and more kind of like animalistic forms in season four and season five, because she is ultimately sort of turning herself into spell parts. The further she goes, the more she ruins herself. Um, you know, and of course you have her scene where she, again, ties back, ties back into Rayla. Like Rayla sees someone is scared of her and she backs off and she spares them. Or if she feels like she's not confident in taking on a mission and saving the Drake in season four, she walks away, but she doesn't create more harm. Meanwhile, Claudia is trapped the dragon. She is the aggressor and she keeps pushing. And the only reason she doesn't is because she realizes she doesn't have to. She sees that this creature is afraid of her. This thing at her mercy is scared of her and she likes it. And I think, again, it shows that difference in perspective, especially like in season four when Claudia is like, you know, like we know suffering because so many humans have gone through it, almost claiming that like intergenerational trauma is exclusive to humanity, even when Rayla is a pretty good walking example of how that's not the case. Um, I also want to touch on briefly Sword and Rayla just because I discussed them. So I'm going to circle back. Uh, there's going to be a lot of circling back again, like two, this is two takes. So we're all just along for the ride. But basically in season one, this was one of the things that made me like really excited about the show and the way it was doing its foil dynamics, which again, we'll get into Viren and Callum and all that stuff later is more or less the way that the show does a really great job at building characterization and character arcs on a basis of irony. What that means, obviously, irony is kind of like, you know, an expectation is subverted or contradicted, right? And so you have Rayla, who's supposed to be an assassin. She's supposed to kill these boys. She ends up becoming their family and their sworn protector. 
Like she will die for them without hesitation. Granted, Rila will die for a little too many things without hesitation, but that's neither here nor there right now. And then you have Soren who's grown up with them. He is a crown guard. He is supposed to protect them. And instead he's asked to assassinate them. Right. And I think it's really interesting that you watch Soren kind of move from um, like a positive position to a negative position and then back to a positive position. And I also don't think it's an accident then that you have Soren and Rayla, both their kind of arcs in terms of, you know, being foils to each other in this way with the boys and with Viren is is culminating in the fact that they both kill Viren at the end of season three. Soren has the illusion, which is very moon shadowy, uh, even if the emotion is very real and the ramifications for him and Claudia are very real. real. And then Rayla gets the actual real version, which maybe isn't that moon shadowy. So the show is kind of very aware of kind of building things through irony and i think again you can see that in places like you know viren in trying to achieve better things for himself and for his people at least according to himself uh creates his exact same situation more or less for another character who would hate his guts if and when they ever interact you know who also might be a mage who falls prey to erevos especially because of you know the amount of metaphor and symbolic language that kareem uses and Viren's own concern with symbols, you know, an empty throne is a weakening of weakness, Kareem being like your marriage will be a symbol, you know, and I think that also ties into the way that they interact with their monarchs and how their monarchs interact with them. Because Ezra and Janai likewise have a lot of similarities. They both take the throne under grief. They both are actively grieving while ruling. They're both kind of unsure of, do I really want this? Am I really ready for this? Am, am I going to be able to make the choices I need to make? Am I going to make the right choices, right? And they both ultimately, when there are people on trial, they choose restorative justice. They choose justice and compassion in ways that are not going to further harm, but instead reduce it. It doesn't mean you ignore the harm. It doesn't mean you ignore the hurt. But you're aware that people also kind of deserve the chance to live and grow and try again, even though it's difficult, even though it's not that simple. One of the things that I really liked about season four, and yes, I loved season four from the start. Thank you very much. Uh, and these are some of the reasons why, is that in a lot of ways, um, you know, the the first arc is kind of like a lot more about maybe binaries, you know, like, oh, well, you can have a narrative of love or a narrative of strength or and that true strength is found in love and that sort of thing. Or you can be a powerless human or you can be a dark mage or you can be, you know, Harold's kind of king or Viren's kind of king, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and we see both the princes routinely kind of reject those binaries and carve out a third path. And I really liked the way that season four kind of like continued that thematic maturation in some ways even further of kind of taking the binaries and say, the third path is reconciling them. The third path is saying, we're not just going to choose pain and we can't just choose love. We're not just going to choose being with the Maya or being queen. We're going to have two cakes. We're going to walk both roads because we kind of have to if we want to make substantial change, if we want to have reform, if we want to have growth. It's very, maybe Terry would be happy with this metaphor, but it's very kind of like plants need rain and sunshine, right? 
And so even, you know, with Cal and Rila is like, you know, I'm so happy she's back. I'm so mad that she's back at the same time, or I'm still so mad that she left, you know, you know, and kind of maybe having those more complicated emotions, those more complicated dynamics and relationships, even, even Kareem, right? It's not that he doesn't love his sister Well, in season five, you know, we'll see, but it's more just like he genuinely believes that what he's doing is right and i think it's those kinds of antagonists that are the hardest and most realistic to kind of face because that's what most people are like in real life Mo nobody's out here thinking oh well i'm perpetuating harm or oh i'm doing this or if they know that they are then they have some sort of cognitive dissonance or lack of compassion where they think like oh well it's not that bad or it doesn't matter you know but I think the show does an excellent job at kind of um, considering and examining uh, the fact that if you lean too much one way, or you lean too much the other, like you're going to miss things. And I think Harrow, again, is a really good character who embodies that because he leaned too heavily kind of both ways in his life. And now his sons are having to kind of pick up those pieces. And so is Zubeya, right? Um in terms of her kind of having her parallels to to harrow in terms of you know you act out of vengeance you lost your family you lost your mate you're just in so much rage you have to put it somewhere um and kind of you know the, the struggle of of removing the cycle is basically saying oh well it's not about whether these people deserve revenge or something like that it's about what can we do to make things better like is this person suffering actually going to make your life better or is it just going to make you feel better in the moment and not actually change anything for anybody else you know what i mean a really good example i think of the way that the overall cycle creates similarity is something about how um Callum is both like inadvertently and also like I'm trying to think of how to phrase this which probably isn't my best moment but it's almost like he's being strong-armed into dealing with the fallout of Viren's actions in season four and season five regardless of anything else that Callum has done and I think one of the ways that we can see all of this kind of really come together is in Finnegan's wake, where you have Finnegan, right, who who is enjoying his freedom, living his life, maybe not being the best person, and then he kind of gets knocked down a peg. He loses someone in something, you know. He he gets his freedom infringed upon. He stands up for himself. Then he loses someone that he loves. And then now he feels like he is in prison and he's not actually, he enjoys a lot of the same freedoms, but this is what's in his head, right? So he's like, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to seek out this dark magic spell as a solution to, to free myself so that I can achieve my aims basically. And then you have Callum in that episode who is also kind of, you know, on the high seas doing his thing, living his life. Obviously, he's trying to stop like the end of the world, you know, but bear with me. He's he's free, loosely speaking. Okay. And then they get captured. So he's losing his freedom, right? Like literally, he challenges Finnegan's rule by punching him, right? 
then he is threatened with the loss of somebody he loves he uses dark magic to free himself and to achieve his aims right it's kind of like obviously they're very different people they're both connected to the ocean arcanum by the end of the episode you know when finnegan says as long as she's out there i'll never be truly free i did think about kyle and Erebos, you know and i think that's also one of the reasons why callum is like yeah i want to find the nova blade you know i i want to kill Erebos. like i will seek out that information very much the same way that viren sought out information a spell and something ancient and powerful about of his andom because it's kind of like would viren have ever been free of his guilt over sarai without killing thunder and again maybe viren just could have gone to therapy and everything would have been fine but they don't have therapy and it's kind of like that idea right of even calm and viren being like very similar people in a lot of ways and you know you kind of see that viren started out as somebody who would do absolutely anything for his loved ones to protect them and then over time he lost that he started deprioritizing them you know like he says i'll do anything to save the king i would do anything for harrow i will you know i'll offer up the soldiers lives i will volunteer my life once i kind of get called on it in order to to keep harrow alive not realizing that like yeah veer and skirting consequences and getting out of things scot-free while harrow was going to die for their choices that stung but it really is at this point the fact that like the blood price will come eventually you cannot escape it forever like the consequences are going to catch up to you right and i think we even see that in terms of like viren says i'll do anything but he won't give up the egg he won't tell Hera that it's there he won't give it so that at least like we can maybe guarantee that ezrin will be spared or that could be a step towards peace he won't hand zadia a weapon what he believes to be a weapon he would rather do all of this than have that and then conversely you have callum where you know he he does care about the world he does care but not to the same degree as Viren does he's not going to be like oh the greater good above you know the immediate lives he's not it's kind of like Ezra and Rila can choose to sacrifice themselves for the cause that they truly deeply believe in without guilt like saving the egg or saving the dragon and Callum will support them. He won't try and really stop them in that. Or, or going after Viren at the end of season four. Even though it hurts, he'll be like, okay, cool. Because he knows where it's coming from. He knows it's coming from a good, measured, more like centered place. And whether that's the case for Rayla in season four, entirely different video essay. But like, you know, but, but Callum is somebody where we see in 508, it's like, it's a choice between like mitigating the damage of you keep your mouth shut you don't get the spell Rayla dies or you give the spell that he wasn't willing you know you do dark magic he wasn't willing to do that for under torture he wasn't willing to give up the spell like regardless but when it's her on the line he'll get he'll give it he folds right and i think in a lot of ways that's him and viren's biggest difference because Callum is not willing to pick the people that he loves the most and then just choose to sacrifice them on that level. And Viren was willing to, and that's a lot of what season five is kind of deconstructing of, oh, you say it's for this, you say it's for that. Is it really, was it really, or was it also equally about power, about wanting your own kind of self-importance? Which again, I think we can see almost in like 
Soren and Viren both realizing like, hey, I was following this path. I was following these ideas. My body got wrecked because of it, right? Or I lost a lot following this. I'm going to strike first. Claudia thinks she can fix it. She can't. Like, I'm going through my own emotional journey. Like, I am learning to accept, like, different forms of strength. You know, even the way that Viren says when they're having their initial discussion in, in season one, where Viren and Soren are talking about Ezra, and Soren's like, if we are following a child king, it's like, he'll make bad choices. And Viren goes, he'll make weak choices. Because weakness and badness are an equation to him, right? They're synonymous to him. And then we see over time that that is not necessarily true, right? We see eventually him realize that, like, no, I can't just keep on sacrificing people's lives. It's already ruined my my relationships with both of my children. You know, Claudia is becoming worse and worse. Um, and he refused. And even, like, Sir Sparklepuff, who was, like, literally made to die, which I love Sir Sparklepuff so much. Um, Viren says, no, I'm not going to kill you, even though this is what you were made for. I'm going to believe that your destiny can be something different. I'm going to choose for my destiny, my path of fate, to be something different. And again, that loops back into, you know, for Callum, I was writing, I wrote a big kind of magnum opus meta for them postseason five that I really enjoyed the other day, which again is on Tumblr and also on Twitter. But like, you know, the... I know pre-season five, I was kind of like, I was thinking that Viren would probably break away from Erebos. I was thinking as soon as he got brought back, I was like, well, death is oftentimes transformation and he has clear eyes, whereas before his eyes were always like, you know, you had Erebos in one of them or you had like the dark magic potion in one of them. So I was like, Viren has clear eyes and he's, death is transformation. He's getting an atonement arc, you know? And so I was always kind of thinking that Viren would break away from Erebos, you know, probably, but it was a really interesting thing to kind of sit back and realize, like, huh, he's breaking away, which means that, like, you know, he's not there just to provide a contrast to Callum. He's also there to provide a mirror because now, you know, inevitably, maybe not in season six, maybe not till the end of season seven, but inevitably, you know, Callum will break away from Erebos and that's going to be a parallel. It's kind of like, you know, Viren's path is not all doom and gloom and negative now for Callum the way that it was before. It also kind of offers that hope of you can also get off your path. You can also make different decisions. And I think that's super meaningful as well. And then I'm trying to think if there's anybody else that I really wanted to talk about. Obviously, you know, you have um, Kim Dayal and Erevos with their similarities in terms of being in prison and wanting freedom and revenge and they're not afraid to perpetuate the cycle. I think it makes a lot of sense to have an antagonist like Erevos who is almost quite literally like history itself that you're almost like waging war against, especially when like the chains of history, all that sort of thing. I think that really tracks. Um, you also have you know, even like the parallels between like Runan and Claudia in terms of you have too much maybe faith in your family member to do what you expect them to do. Of like, oh, well, everything's going to be fine. They would never let me down. And then they do. And like you have a really rough time because of it. Um, and so last but not least, I want to talk about something maybe more explicitly than what I've already loosely kind of touched on. 
in regards to the idea of the cycle creating similarity, specifically in the fact that it creates um, generational trauma, kind of what I touched on with Claudia, in addition to sorts of things like, um, it's almost like, you know, arc one is a lot about we're fixing the mistakes of our parents, you know, we're, we're trying to either follow or not follow in the footsteps of our parents, you know, like, I'm not going to be an assassin, or I'm not going to be a dark mage, or I'm going to be a proper crown guard, I'm not going to be the king that my father was, all that sort of stuff, you know. And then I think arc two is interesting because it's a lot more, how do we fix our own mistakes, you know, down to like Soren even breaking his tiny cycle that he recognizes when he's getting through to Elmer about Finnegan, right? Of being like, he's cruel, but you don't have to be. You don't have to be like the people who hurt you. You can be something different, right? Or even like, you know, um Claudia kind of now inheriting like both staffs and very much kind of stepping into her father's role Rayla having to return and kind of make up for leaving and you know imitating her parents in that way but also Karen Renan's bow having a little shoulder pad with him being called to be an assassin right I feel like arc one is a lot about like this is how we break the cycle and thus far a lot of season four and season five has been yes breaking the cycle for sure but also kind of examining in greater detail like why does the cycle exist you know why is this here and i think that's also why we're getting more into Erebos because Erebos, in a lot of ways at least according to Zubea, is a big reason why the cycle has existed for so long of who's kept who's kept turning the wheel you know of this suffering, of this manipulation and magic and kind of utilizing the things that maybe haven't been dealt with. And I think we can see that, you know, in things that were maybe more clear cut in the first few seasons being less clear cut now, like Callum doing dark magic again, or like Viren having to acknowledge some of his anger and figure out like you know i'm king and i want to be a different king but like what does that actually mean what does that legitimately look like in the long term or even like janai right and i think some of that even kind of comes from like you know like what do we inherit from our parents what do we take into ourselves and then put back out right in terms of like the good and the bad right um and even just questions like of you know like who are we becoming like you know i think a lot about how again particularly in season four callum is acting a lot more like rayla and she's acting a lot more like him you know she's the one who's more open technically speaking, at least about trying to get him to, to open up, you know, she's more patient. Um, and then you have Callum, he's more stoic, he's more closed off, partially because he's older, partially because he's been through a lot more, but largely because she's gone and how, um, you know, it's kind of like the ways that we respond to the traumas that we go through oftentimes can make it harder to actually repair and do the work it takes to grow past those traumas right and back to that idea of like 
I think one of the reasons why I appreciate 403 so much as an episode, specifically Ezrin's speech, is that to me, it's like a turning point for the whole show. Because it's kind of like, again, in arc one, it's not that love is all wishy-washy, good, positive stuff, and there's no hang-ups or bad things about it, right? Like, we see a couple of examples of the more destructive quality to love, right? Specifically in regards to Viren and his kids, Viren having, not Viren, Soren having to realize, like, oh, I'm not safe with my father, I need to leave, even though I love that even though this is difficult, like, I have to go, and then Claudia, obviously, who doesn't leave because of love, right? Or even like Harrow, who avenged Sarai because, you know, it, it's something that she absolutely would have disapproved of. She never would have wanted. But it's kind of like when you're in that deep, in the waters almost, like you can't see the surface anymore. You're kind of like you're losing yourself, you know? And one of the things that made me so excited in season four that I think season five has done such a good job at, at building for the for the bulk of the main cast is this idea that like you will do terrible things for love. Love and the cycle is like, it's kind of like if you just watch arc one, you can kind of get the gist that like love is in opposition to the cycle. If the cycle is hate and pain, then, then the opposition is love and joy and forgiveness, right? And it's not like that isn't still true, because it definitely is, you know. Um, but I think season four and season five absolutely complicate that and being like some of the best or most important things that you'll do, you'll do terrible things for the people you love. And we see that in particular in like the mage characters, you know, like Kareem is motivated out of, yes, like self-importance, but like grief is what has kept the cycle turning ultimately like grief and feeling scared of being powerless or being angry because you've been hurt and kind of like listening too much to those emotions as Ezrin says like you want to hurt you want to hurt somebody else you want to hate them because that's easier right I think it goes back to that idea of like dark magic is easier because dehumanization is easier it is always easier to look at someone and think you're not enough of a person for me to have to care so I can use you for spell parts or I can kill your parent or I can do blah or I can kill you blah 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 and but it's also very like human nature to prioritize the people that we immediately know and care for over strangers right like duh and so I feel like season four, especially like, again, like with particularly like Viren and Claudia and season four and Terry of, you know, like I had to, I couldn't let him hurt you in the name of love. Like you will do things that you never thought you could do, right? That you'll never forgive yourself for. And then Callum's starting to catch up with some of that in season five, the same time that we see like what Viren loosely you know, we don't totally know, but have an idea of like Viren doing something awful to himself or possibly to others in order to save Soren. And it's kind of like it was his child's life, you know, like how, how can you kind of rebuttal that? But at the same time, it's like, was it worth it if this is all that it caused? But also like, how could it not be worth it? You know, like that's your kid. And so I think the show does a really good job at kind of shifting that what was kind of in the forefront in in arc one and bringing it up to arc two and i think that's going to really suit erebos going forward because presumably you know i'm sure he started turning the wheel out of grief 
because that's how that's why most people have turned it even if it's like maybe grief for yourself right like you're mourning maybe the person that you could have become but didn't i think we see elements of that with viren um or you're mourning like the loss of your sense of self of feeling steady and secure i think we see some of that in callum near the end of the season um, and we see that even with like Zubeo, right? Of like the dark magic corruption. Like she's, it's literally making her lose her sense of self, her control, her awareness. Um, and I feel like that's ultimately like, you know, the cycle is train tracks of a perpetual trolley problem of this life or this life or this life and these lives. And you know, it's not easy to just say, oh, well, you know, you should always prioritize the greater good because like, well, Viren was doing that in his own mind and he messed everything up or that's what Rayla was doing and leaving and she messed everything up. But at the same time, if you only prioritize the person next to you, then you leave others to suffer, right? Even like with like the famine um, or, you know, with the magma titan, like, should you have prioritized the individual? And the show, I think one of the reasons that makes the show so brilliant is that it explores all of those questions and it gives a variety of answers if and when it gives answers at all. Like, the show is not interested in being like, well, this is the only way to break the cycle or this is the only reason the cycle exists. We get a real very complexity of perspectives and nuances and motivations right whether it's like the motivations the characters give the motivations that they think they have but they don't actually or the ones that they grow to have and it's something where i'm someone where like i write and i consume things primarily from a thematic standpoint i don't know if that's like the english major or the autism in me but that very much is kind of where I sort of like cement my understanding. And most things that I've enjoyed are very thematically strong. That's one of the things I find where like, even if a show is really fun or good, if it's not very, and not all shows have to, or books have to prioritize theme. I'm not saying that, but for me, that's definitely where I find a lot of interest. And I think the Dragon Prince is is thematically brilliant and so strong in this way because again you're just watching where everybody falls and then basically the whole cast um obviously like there are some side characters like i would say like vilas or lu jane who are kind of removed from it um but like basically everyone is just like where do you fall in this cycle of of belief where do you fall in this cycle of you know perpetuating violence against some people or betraying some people you know and kind of like you know if you look at things from claudia's perspective yeah the trio has ruined her her life they cut off her legs or the reason her dad is gone she lost her home like she has every good reason to hate them should she hate them right and or even again like when you look at their perspective against claudia like of course they're opposed to her right and I think it's a level that we just don't see that often in media in general, but particularly in kids media. Cause I think one of the reasons why the dragon prince is so great is because it's, it's for kids media. Like some of my students have watched it. We've used it to like discuss certain things or examples, you know, and 
I think, again, it speaks to that ambition and skill that the show has to take something on that is this emotionally heavy. Like, people are like, oh, the Dragon Prince is my comfort show. And I'm like, the Dragon Prince makes me cry, like, every other episode. Like, I don't understand how this is, like, comforting. Like, I'm a weeping mess, you know? Um and I think that I'm really, really excited for season six because I feel like season six is going to bring so many things from the first five seasons full, full circle, pun intended. Um, and it's going to be absolutely incredible to watch because the last five seasons have been incredible to watch. I think that the show's ability to examine why and how people are ultimately more similar to each other in a lot of ways than they are different while never losing sight of the similarities or the differences that matter the most is just super skillful. And I wish more shows did it. I wish there was more media like this because it is my favorite thing. And I hope you enjoyed this long, rambling, loosely coherent video essay.